you take 5 billion, divide by 1.4, each citizen must travel about 3.5 times across China within that year, right? So there is a very internal, bustling, you know, uh, activity. And there are also 2 billions, uh, sorry, 2 billion airs being created in China every week. The billion S is not in Chinese yuan, yeah? It's in US dollars. And you can see that the rising affluent is actually being, is re relatively prominent uh, in, in China. Right-hand side, industrial upgrade. In 2016, import, China imports more semiconductor than the raw materials like petroleum. You can see that they are upgrading. And yet at the same time, China is the number one robot market globally in terms of sales volume. Just as of last year, they have installed 471 right, robots into their uh, supply chain. Bottom right-hand side, e-commerce. China is already a global leader on e-commerce and also home to one-third of the world's unicorns. Right? The unicorns may sound very uh, foreign to you. Unicorns are basically the private uh, entities. They are actually starting up in the disruption, innovative business, and China holds one-third of them. And of course, on the left-hand side, environment is also something that the government is trying to embark on. More than 50% of the solar installation from China is, uh, sorry, more than uh, the, China actually installed more than 50% of the global installation uh, in 2017. And it's also one of the largest e electric vehicle sales globally as well. So you notice that China is taking on a very, very big step. So some of the investors tend to ask us a very simple question. Okay, these are very interesting, trivial. So how can I leverage on that? If you look at the next slide, it talks about, based on the previous uh, diagrams, we talk about what is actually happening, right? So if you look at the top, in terms of the domestic tourist number, the dark blue bar talks about that 5 billion tourist, uh, uh, number of tourists that's traveling around China. And that dark blue bar has been climbing very, very significantly in the past 10 years. Right? So this is a significant structural trend. If you are a business and you plan for travel, if you are a business and you plan for lodging, hotels, you notice that such sectors will eventually start to benefit as more and more people travel within China. Right-hand side, manufacturing. What you also notice is that in 1980s, the dark grey bar represents 53% of industrials, which is the low-value add. Things like maybe just making rice, exporting coffee beans, right? But in the year of 2015, the green color bar, which is high value, be it, you know, peripherals, drones, you know, high-tech gadgets, they're actually being made in China. Bottom right-hand side will also tell you that the representation of e-commerce in China is representing about 40%, right, so not 40%, uh, more than 50% of global e-commerce volume, bigger and stronger than compared to the US, which is the dark blue bar. And on the left-hand side, as mentioned about going green, about seven years ago, China was just here. So you notice that they are also trying to reverse the pollution they have actually been making over the past decades. So things are changing. China is no longer the same China that we have talked about 10, 20 years ago they have actually emerged. So what has been very significant about China is about their domestic GDP, right? If you look at their domestic GDP very clearly, they have actually increased their services and decreased their manufacturing. 
So with China leading themselves into be a domestic consumption story and straying themselves away from the export-oriented industries, you can see that China will be more sustainable and self-sufficient. Right-hand side will also give you a very quick illustration on um, affluence. So once again, about 10 years ago, you'll notice that bulk of the Chinese would spend their money on necessities, food, rice, clothes, right? But in the future, and right now as we speak, bulk of their spending is actually from this portion, which is discretionary. Which holiday destination they want to go, what tuition center should I send my kids to, and so on and so forth. So things are really changing in terms of their lifestyle, their spending habits. And after seeing so much, what we really want to emphasize is a very, very symbolic trend, which is that China as a market is too big to be ignored. Whether do you like it or not, China's performance will directly or indirectly impact your investment returns. And the reason why I say this is because if you look across the various markets of China, let's start off with the left-hand side. Right now, Shenzhen has a market cap of about 3.1 trillion US dollars. Shanghai A shares has a market cap of about 4.5 trillion US dollars. If you add it up together, sorry, there's a typo at the back, at the top, it should be 7.6 trillion US dollars. What most investors here today would have invested in China through Hong Kong listed stocks or the US listed stocks from the China companies. This portion, which represents about 70% of China's market cap, is right now underrepresented. Underrepresented. And if you add this up together at about 10.9 trillion US dollars, China is bigger than Eurozone. So you can see how big China is, too big to be ignored. What is symbolic and very important to future investment decisions is this slide. The inclusion of China A shares in MSCI. So on the left-hand side, talks about this year, we have successfully right, integrated Chinese A shares into the MSCI this year in two portions, in May and in August. And right now, it represents about 0.7%. Going to next year, there will be another 20% that will be implemented in two phases, right? So what you'll notice is that there will be increase of A-share representation in MSCI going to happen in 2019, a not too distant future. And if potentially when 100% inclusion of China A into the market, you'll notice that China A would be a very, very big representation in MSCI. So how does that impact you as an investor? As an active manager, when an index has China A, no longer can I ignore China A. I have to start making an active decision. Should I neutral China A, overweight China A, or underweight China A? Before the inclusion of MSCI, you do not have to worry about it. But after the inclusion of China A, you notice is that the prominence the understanding of China will be much more uh, available in the global indices. I've said quite a bit, I'll just end off my last slide uh, in terms of introduction on the corporate fundamentals.
after the very, very drastic correction that we have seen in China, there is still a good silver lining uh, to talk about the China's earnings. On the left-hand side, it talks about the A-share uh, profit growth. It has been trending up. The middle diagram talks about the EPS, earnings per share, on a forward-looking perspective. It is also trending up. And if you were to look at earnings-wise, companies are making profits. They are profitable. And the good news here is that after the recent correction, it has actually sent valuations to rock bottom. I think in the, the past two panels, we've always talked about the valuations. And right now for the China A market, sorry, this should be China H market, it is right now hovering about 10.9 times, and the China A market is actually below its historical average at about 10 times. So there are opportunities right now as we speak uh, on China. Right? I've said quite a bit, and for my second part of uh, the session today, we will start our panel discussion, right? So there are very two brave gentlemen beside me <laughs> that's here to talk on China. And I'll start off with the first question, right? So I've said a lot on China. So Pinnikin, in terms of your own perspective, um, how would an investor uh, access and how should an investor access into China? Our opinion at Alliance is, is that you should look at China holistically. There are really two ways to access it. You can either use MSCI China Asia, which is the mainland domestic, and that's in the, in the blue bars here. And then in addition to that, you've got sort of what we refer to as offshore, MSCI China offshore, which is stocks that are listed in Hong Kong and in New York. When you add the two together, you get a very, very good complement. So as you'll see from this, uh, the A-share market provides us exposure into a lot of the growth sectors that we like, the industrial space, the consumer space. That exposure you can't get in the Hong Kong listed stocks. Hong Kong listed stocks are mostly in the financials and in the IT, that's in the green. So by complementing the two strategies, you're basically playing all of the industries and the best opportunities that you have. So this all China concept provides us with the best opportunity set. You want to get at something, Gary? Yeah, just in, in, in addition to that, this is a bit more of a higher level sort of view, but um, going back to one of your slides as well, where China, as A shares increasingly move into the index, that China becomes such a big part of different indices, whether it's emerging market index, or the Asia X Japan index. Um, and, and we believe that it's getting to a point, or will potentially get to a point in five, even maybe 10 years time at maximum, where China is actually such a big part of the indices that you're gonna have to start thinking about it as a standalone allocation, in the same way you think about Japan, the same way you think about US. And you have to stop thinking about getting your China exposure via a diversified Asia fund or, or a diversified emerging markets fund. You have to start thinking about Asia, ex-China, ex-Japan. And, and that, that, that is actually a huge asset allocation decision for, for fund selectors out there, for, you know, for the CIOs to, to make. And it's something that we've been having discussions with, with financial houses about. So, Pinnikin, you did mention um, that you know, there's a split between A shares, H shares, and also the US listed stocks. And we do know that before the Stock Connect was actually being established, there's practically no access for foreign investors to buy into A shares. 
Are there any um, um, trends that you've actually seen in the A-share markets that you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, we just need to take a step back and understand the A-share market. The retail investor takes up 86% of the turnover of the A-share market. They control 50% of the market cap. It is a very sentiment-driven market, and that is why we've seen a lot of sector rotation and there's a very sentiment driven. If we move to the next slide here, this I think is an interesting slide. What we've done is taken MSCI China Asia, looked at all of the sectors, all 11 sectors, how they've performed. Look at IT. You know, in, in, in 2013, it was the best sector. Then in 2014, it was the worst. Then it was the best. And then it was the worst. You know, that rotational nature is something that is dictated by the short-termism that retail investors have. As we see the market open up to institutional investors, this, hopefully, this short-termism will disappear as the institutional investor takes a long-term perspective, a five-year perspective, and they actually look and understand valuations and dynamics. I also just want to put into context the comment we talked about MSCI's uh, potential entry or the raising of the inclusion factor. That is going to bring 100, US, 100 billion US dollars into the China market. Given current allocations of where passive funds and active funds are, you're going to see some substantial inflows into the A-share market. And that over time will change the psyche of how A-share managers, uh, both retail and institutional, will start to look at their market. The best example of how this would work is how, what happened in Taiwan. Uh, I've looked at Asian equity markets for more than 27 years. I have invested in, for, for, into Asia for during that period. When I started my career, you could not buy into Taiwan. You had to buy a country fund. And then effectively, they opened that market up, and then you were able to buy stocks. But again, the same situation, the domestic investor dominated. And right now, it is the foreign investor that dominates. And I think that is a good test case of what we're likely to see in China. Yeah, and if you just look at some of the statistics that we've been looking at recently, um, northbound Stock Connect, so, so foreign investors that, that uh, participate in the A-share market, are now actually taking up about six to seven percent of the total turnover on, on a daily basis, right? That was zero percent four years ago, basically, because Stock Connect didn't exist. Um, we, and also, a, a sort of a statistic we've been, we've been kind of uh, talking about uh, at work as well is the Chinese government came out and said we've been able to increase the average daily holding period, sorry, the average holding period for an investor in China, and, and it's now 20 days. The average holding period for a stock in China is 20 days. That gives you the indication of the retail mentality, but it's going up, right? And, and it, it's pretty low at the moment. And to Pinnikin's point, um, as, as we see more foreign participation in, in professional investor participation, you know, you, we, we, we will see more of a uh, kind of a, a normalized market somewhat. Right. Just writing on the note on China A shares. So we know that this year, uh, on a year-to-date perspective, China A had a correction. 
Um, would, would you want to elaborate on what were the inflows, where were they from, or the outflows, uh, based on the liquidity mechanism? Well, I mean, the, the, the sell-down in the A-share market is predominantly driven by domestic retail. Mm -hmm. um, sentiment, they've concerned about sentiment. Obviously, the things like Trump tariff and, and that, that sort of negative news flow has impacted the retail investor. Um, and you've seen multiple areas across, the, you know, cr across various industries being sold down. For example, consumer discretionary. Um, and, and that's uh, a case in telecom services, as we can see in the chart here. Um, is, is you know, something that the guys have been selling. So I think to summarize, I think the trend is that the retail investors in China were busy redeeming their stocks when the offshore foreign investors were actually coming into this market uh, to access this very untapped opportunity. And most, uh, the Merrill Lynch fund manager survey basically indicated that most foreign fund managers are about two and a half percent overweight on China. So there is a optimism in China by the foreigners and a pessimism of China within China. And that there, is, uh, there is that split and that's very much reflected in the asset allocation. Yeah, and if I, if I think about just what we're doing as a house and on average, I mean, our, our China exposure in the last six to seven weeks has gone up significantly. Uh, and most of the new ideas are actually being, uh, coming from the A-share market. And just to allude to that, we, I mean, we ourselves are in a similar situation to, to Fidelity, but we're actually increasingly looking at adding positions to stocks that we already own. So we're not adding any new names. A lot of those stocks that we know well, uh, that we've monitored, discussions with management, continue to confirm that their order books, their earnings are still intact. And I think that will be a key indicator as we go into the third quarter earnings season as to see what those companies are doing. Okay, I think you know, there is definitely this interesting observation this year. So maybe let's go into the more uh, uh, talked about topic this year, which is trade war. Yeah, tariffs. Uh, I, I love tariffs. Uh, so if we start firstly here with the, the, the light blue chart or the shaded part, that's what Trump had proposed. And the reality of what's actually happened is the dark blue. Okay, you can see phase one and phase two, which is tariffs at about $250 billion uh, that were announced obviously July, August, and then in September. Now what's more important is the market has and is factoring in phase three. Phase three is tariffs for $267 billion. That is the remaining portion of exports that goes from China to the US. What is more important is this third phase, which has not been announced. It's important to just emphasize it has not been announced, but the market is factoring in that it is coming. 60% of the tariffs in this third phase is consumer electronics. The first phase was mostly industrial uh, materials, etc. But this third phase means that the US consumer is going to be hit with a higher prices for Apple phones, etc. And again, coming back to the earlier point I made, the US consumer has not woken up to this. US corporates have not woken up to this. Right now, this week, there was a big fair that takes place in China, which is an outsourcing fair. The feedback from that outsourcing fair 
is that the Chinese manufacturers are going to pass on any increase in tariff onto their US customers, okay? This is going to lead to higher inflation. I think there is one thing that we, we need to put into context of tariffs is that US, sorry, Chinese exports to the US accounts for 3.5% of exports. 10 years ago, it was 7.5%. So in the space of 10 years, the Chinese government has reduced the exports. Going forward, I think it will reduce even further at an exponential rate. And the trade tariff has only encouraged the Chinese to push forward with a policy that they've already had in place to reduce their dependency on the US. Now, I really think that the US itself is going to suffer far more severely than the Chinese. As I said before, I've looked at China for a long period of time. I am impressed with how they have restrained themselves and not retaliated. They will deal with these issues in the way that China always does, which is inward looking. They will do it at their own pace and at their own will. This is nothing to do with China. Whilst we were in this room this morning, China in announced their third quarter GDP. Third quarter GDP came in at 5.5%. Consensus was for about 5.6%. Now, when you read the Bangkok Post or the Asian Wall Street Journal, you'll see the headline, which is that China's GDP is now at an all-time, well, is the lowest that it's been since 2008. I do not disagree with that. But we need to put this into context. The Chinese economy now is $2.2 trillion. It is three times the size, or back in 2009, it was you know, a fraction of where we are right now. So the economy itself has grown substantially since 2009. So when you look at the headline figures, you need to look at the denominator, which is the size of the Chinese economy. Uh, so right now, it's at 2.2 trillion. So you will continue to see lower levels of GDP. It is a planned process that has been put in place by the Chinese government for well over a decade. Next year, Chinese GDP will be around 5.3%. Okay, do not be surprised about that. But it is the magnitude of that 5.3% that you should look at, i.e. the size of the Chinese economy. Okay, so as was alluded to earlier on, we need to put these numbers into context, always into context, and do not be scared by what we see in the headlines because the reality of things is vastly different to what is going on and the perception of what people think is going on. And, and then I think from, I mean, two additional points to add to the, the Trump tariff, as we call it. Um, one is when we're talking to companies that could be impacted, they're also saying to us, well, do you know what? Um, we're gonna look at Thailand or Vietnam to build our next factory. They're not impacted by these tariffs. So they're just, they're just shifting their operations to a place where actually, at the moment, it's probably a bit cheaper to actually uh, to manufacture that same product. 
Um, so that's, that's one thing, and it could actually be a beneficiary, a beneficial to, to the ASEAN countries. Um, the other thing as well is we're talking to companies um, who, who maybe import things from the US who could be impacted by a retaliation um, sort of tariff. So for example, uh, Foshan Haitian, which is a, a soy sauce manufacturer in China, they're saying to us, our predominant input for soybeans is from the US. Okay, that is a, that is a potential risk for us. And they're just looking for other, uh, other areas for their for sourcing. So they're going to Brazil now. They're looking at sourcing soybeans in Brazil. Now, if you're a farmer in the US and you're told that there's tariffs on China, you're saying, yeah, that's great. Um, but in a year's time, when your, your main customer, which is China, isn't buying from you, it, it won't feel quite so good. Right, thanks. I think you know, the conclusion I drew was that uh, China, despite these tariffs, has actually much more ammunition to actually play around with, and at the same time, exports to the US has already been decreasing quite sizably in the last decade, right? So may I hear from you both, um, what other things can a central government in China do um, uh, on, on this? So, first of all, the Chinese government have put in place a policy since the middle of this year to start to boost the economy. So. It has nothing really to do with the trade tariffs. Again, you'll see all of these headlines. So in the middle of this year, they started various initiatives, and you can see some of these on the left-hand side, you know, consumption uh, benefits, infrastructure-type policies. So all of these policies will generate about a 1.5% boost to GDP. The impact of the trade tariff is going to be about 0.7 to 0.8%. So you've got the impact of that, but that has been more than offset by what we see here. Now, at the end of this month, there is going to be a plenary session of the Chinese Central Communist Party. At that point, they will announce a, a huge infrastructure boost and further consumption uh, uh, incentives and consumption uh, plan in place. So do not be surprised if what by the end of this year we'll start to see a package which in total is going to boost the Chinese economy by 2%. History has shown us that at the time of the global financial crisis, the Chinese government will implement a fiscal stimulus packages and that will have an impact. Now, the impact itself typically takes three to six months before it starts to show in the numbers. So don't expect to see it overnight, but it is there and it's been put in place. In addition to that, there's also been cuts in the rate reserve requirements, so they're adding more liquidity back into the market. So there is plenty that the Chinese government are doing, and it has not been as a consequence of the trade tariff. It was already in place in the middle of this year. Gary, do you have any additional comments? Yeah, just in, in addition to that, um, I suppose in a bit more detail of where we think we could see some stimulus come through. Um, you can see here, it's quite hard to see, but the sort of purple line, you can see that fixed asset investment, which is the investment spending, has actually fallen. And we think that there's actually a lot of room to grow. And, and we, we think there'll be stimulus packages coming through from China to increase infrastructure spending and such. Now, when I say that, people go, oh no, not again, China's going to be building roads and, and, and they're going to be building lots of railways. The truth is that's done. 
Okay, and, and where we see the, this infrastructure investment coming through is in things you can't see, things that go under the ground. Metro, sewerage systems, power transmission. Right? Ten years ago, China wanted to be, build the biggest bridge and the, and the longest road because you could see it. Right? Come and have a look at this, we've got the biggest bridge in the world. Now, uh, they, they're looking to do things under the ground. It's not so. It's not so such a, so attractive. It, you know, it's not great for photos, um, but it is actually really important for for the efficiency of the of the country and the economy, and and that's where we're really kind of focusing our attention at the moment. Yeah, and, and I think there is a focus on what is referred to as social infrastructure, and this is at the very core of the Chinese because the biggest concern of the Chinese is some sort of unrest. If you look at the Gini coefficient right now, and that is an indicator of the, the, the gap between the, the richest and the poorest, this is what is concerning the Chinese government. Why do you think it is that they're clamping down on you know, pop stars and Chinese actresses that aren't paying taxes? I, I, I was amazed that this Chinese actress was paying $256 million in tax. I don't know how much she earned, but that's a lot to pay in tax or not to pay. So a lot of these issues, I think the Chinese government is aware that they need to focus on the social aspect because the last thing that they want is unrest. You have seen this already in the Middle East. You've seen unrest and you know, divide, you know, even in US politics, Italian politics, Brexit. Now, this is something that, that, that China needs to deal with. So their focus now for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years is one of stability. And this is why Xi Jinping will remain in power. He will see this through till the end. And you, it is important for the very existence of China that, it, it, that he remains in power and sees this through uh, and deals with this inequality that has crept in over time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that this is, a, a, and the focus of social infrastructure will be things like housing, uh, education, hospitals. These are all issues that the Chinese populace are facing right now. Uh, and that's what concerns them. Uh, and as I say, and it equally concerns the Chinese leadership as well. Right. I think, you know, we can all conclude that the Chinese government is rich. They can spend to get out of recession. And in that perspective, what kind of opportunities do you see uh, within the China space? Well, um, th we see opportunities everywhere, to be perfectly frank. But um, uh, we, we've been looking at the ABCD, right? And is, is investing in China as easy as ABCD? Um, I wish it was. It's not. But we are looking at opportunities within AI and automation, big data, cloud, and then also domestic consumption. Okay, there, there are other things we're looking at too, but, but th these are some of the key focuses at the moment that we're, that we're going through. Um, if, to give a, a, an example, someone like Sunart. So Sunart is a retail, uh, they're a retail group. They, they, they have hypermarkets uh, and supermarkets across China. Okay, these guys are a sort of industry you think would be disrupted. They, they've got the shops, and then suddenly you've got people who can buy their products online, right? So it's, it's a company that's being disrupted. 
However, they've actually teamed up recently with Alibaba. So Alibaba has taken a strategic partnership um, with Sunart. And, and what that means now is that when you go onto Alibaba's web, uh, Tmall website, you go on the application on the mobile phone, Sunart's, uh, Sunart's symbol is there. You can now do your online shopping with Sunart via Alibaba's uh, mobile app. Okay, and then what happens is that the store that effectively was the store that you would go and visit is also now really a logistical center. It's not just a, a hypermarket, it's where when you, you want to get your washing detergent or, or your, uh, you know, your um, uh, diapers or whatever products you want, that is actually where those products, products are now resided and the delivery driver will go there and collect them for you. And that helps improve their same store sales growth. That is actually using uh, big data so, and going online. And it's interesting, it's using artificial intelligence somewhat because of the delivery and logistics. Um, it's using cloud computing to, to do all of, the, uh, all of the correct sort of algorithms in the background for your delivery. And it's about domestic consumption. It's an interesting story that kind of fits the four ABCDs. And then the second one, which we're quite interested in this company as well, is a bit innovative. <clears throat> so when I was, in, I was in Shanghai last week, and this was outside one of the hypermarkets, right, of, of one of Sunart's hypermarkets. This is actually a cargo container a that you put on a ship. And what they've done is that you have to, where that yellow circle is, you have to swipe your QR code on your mobile phone to go in. You go in, you buy your product, you pay with Alipay or Tenpay, and then you just walk out, right? Now, what that, but nobody works in there. It's a completely automated, manless, um, um, sort of small convenience store. Right. Suddenly, that's, in, that's interesting. Then, because I've done it all digitally, all of the, all of the products that I've bought have gone, and it's, it's, all of that information has been passed into the cloud. And the cloud is then working out about inventory. Okay, what do we need to get delivered to restock this, this sort of small convenience store? And it helps with the, with the, the, the efficiency of that, of that store. The other thing I like about it, because it's a cargo ship, a uh, cargo container, you can just pick it up and you can move it to somewhere else. So where, where Alibaba can look at their, where they can look on the, the use, usage of their app, they can sit there and say, actually we've got, there's, a, there's 100,000 people for some reason are, are over two miles away. And if they wanted to, you could, they could go to SunArt and say, there's 100,000 potential customers who are two miles away and you can pick this up and move it. Right, that is innovation, that is, that, that is using also technology to, to, improve, to improve margins and, and same-store sales growth. Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting uh, observation. I must say that for those of you who are wondering uh, what this is about, you, there is a term right now in China, it's called O2O, right? 10, 10 20 years ago, we want to use um, on offline stores, which is the brick and mortar, and get them to go online, right? But right now, it's the reverse. Yeah. They want to get the online people to go offline, which is right here, right? So this O2O term is right now something that they want people to start collecting. Yeah, well, it, it's to do, with, and it's related to e-commerce, is that people, e-commerce is obviously growing, right? It's such a big part of, of your total kind of retail sales now, and it's roughly around 20 to 25% of total retail sales in China. But not everything, and not every product people want to buy online. Right? You don't want to buy fresh vegetables online. Right? You want to see it, you want to feel it. Right? You don't want to buy, interestingly, we've noticed that nobody wants to buy shoes online. 
everybody wants to buy it, go and try on shoes. Right? There are certain products that, that whilst people are thinking it's going to be disrupted, everyone's moving online, mm -hmm. there's products that can't be disrupted somewhat because of our human emotion. And so online companies are actually now going, maybe we should look at uh, working with offline operators and trying to make their businesses more efficient um, and, and see, you know, let's work together. So where do you see the opportunities, uh, Pinnigan? Yeah, we see, we see opportunities in three key areas. Consumption upgrade. So, you know, China's moved in, already had that consumption story. Now it's a question of upgrading what they've already got. And it's a question of services. Uh, so stocks that we're playing in this particular theme are the duty-free operators in China. Uh, we're looking at, obviously, e-commerce type plays. Uh, and uh, you know, guys that have got strong ecosystems in this area. It, technology manufacturing, uh, we're looking at a lot of Chinese companies that make high precision manufacturing laser technology. So these are all areas that will benefit as a function of the trade tariffs, where they've got a technological lead uh, and where there is a demand for it. So automation, we know China is an aging population, automation will, 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 will be uh, an important aspect. And the Chinese are not going to buy Japanese automation or German automation. They're going to develop themselves. One area where we're slightly different and have a different theme relative to, to, my, to my competitor here is uh, the policy beneficiaries. So who's going to benefit from the various initiatives that the Chinese government has brought in place. So at the 19th National People's Congress, China said they have three key pillars. One is growth, stability, and reform. Uh, you're going to see a lot of consolidation or more consolidation in specific areas within China. Uh, and there are going to be areas that will also benefit from some of the, the, the upcoming uh, benefits that will exist from the infrastructure rollout. So, for example, cement, etc. So, we're looking at that policy beneficiaries as an important theme within China. And it is important because the Chinese government have clearly indicated where they want to go, what their roadmap is. You just need to, we as investors need to figure out who's best place, who's going to be you know, who's going to be in the best position and who's going to be uh, leading that particular initiative. That requires a deep understanding of politics, of the individuals and the characters, and, and that, I think, is somewhere where we spend a lot of time on really understanding the, the policy aspects of the Chinese government, because you do need to know where they want to be. I think both of you have mentioned that you know uh, technology innovation is definitely part and parcel of how China is growing. Can you maybe elaborate on what's China doing uh, to actually increase that technological expect? Yeah, well, I mean to be honest, it, it kind of alludes to a point that Pinnikin made in the previous session. Um, is R and D, right? It's the the fact that China is spending lots in R and D in order to try and stay ahead. Um, to be perfectly honest. And, and also on top of that, you've got this supply of very highly intelligent, sort of motivated individuals um, through the millennial groups, which are constantly graduating in, in their millions into industries that will be the drivers of future growth, um, not just within China, but globally too. 
I mean, I, th I think in China, when you, you've got this great combination of the government initiatives and then the corporate initiatives. So if you looked at the, you know, the, the earlier comment of Alibaba spending $15 billion on AI over three years, when you've got that combination of both supply and then the demand that's being put, that is a powerful combination within China. So you've got, uh, you, you've, you know, you, you're going to see them basically generate a five-year gap, 10-year gap over the competitors uh, as you get both of these engines pushing forward and spending substantially on R&D. And uh, kind of add something to that somewhat on, on this spending R&D. And, it, and it, it's about also uh, about disruptors. And earlier on, Samsung was up on, was up on the screen. Samsung was a disruptor. Right, 10, 10, 15 years ago, it was a key disruptor. Um, and now, actually, we think it's a, a company that's being disrupted. Right? It's being disrupted by your low-cost mobile phones from China. Um, it's also being disrupted from the high end from Apple. Right? So this is a company that's being squeezed. Uh, we went, when we were talking to them a few weeks back, this was, came, came up in discussion with them. And they said, well, look, we're going to start to move into other areas, like AI and, and, health, and healthcare equipment. Right, said, okay, that sounds interesting, but you know, it's, it's expensive. They said, yep, yeah, we, we, we're thinking of you know, sort of, you know, 80, 90, 100 billion dollars of capex over the next five years to do this. And we started thinking, okay, that's interesting, but you're already five years behind at least these Chinese players, and you're going to have to spend even more to catch up. That's, that's not necessarily the best combination you, that you want to have when, when you're investing in companies. Right, right. So maybe for the last question of today's panel, um, maybe you can tell us about the entry point now. Is it a good time after this correction to go into China? I think, first of all, I think we need to start and look at corporate fundamentals, okay? We must not lose sight of these fundamentals. You know, ultimately, as investors, we're buying into companies. We're not buying into sentiment. We're not buying into the, the index. Corporate earnings in China will continue to be strong. Uh, you had a graph on your presentation Earnings expectations going into next year is somewhere around 18% corporate earnings. Now, that may well be uh, a little bit high, but let's say it's down to 15%. You have still got a strong corporate earning environment. 15% per annum is very, very strong. Uh, that being said, the, the equity markets have fallen in China, whether you're looking at A shares, you're looking at hate shares, they've fallen anywhere between 25 to 30%. They fell 2.5% yesterday. So the, the equity market and the sentiment is very negative. Clearly, trade tensions has not been a positive. But when we boil down to what it is that we're buying and the companies that we're buying, we are very, very comfortable with where we are. Right now, uh, this is a chart that I put together at the end of uh, September. Uh, that's clearly very different now, but if you look at the green line, that is the price to book. And uh, you, you know, we saw in the Invesco presentation a similar slide for the region. Right now, that green line sits at around 1.3 times price to book. We are talking about a pretty much a 10-year low in an environment where corporates are earning 15% or so, 18% into next year. I will always go back to history. 
And history is of, I think if people forget about history, people don't have enough history. We must look at history. At these levels, historically what we have seen is within the space of a year, you will look at substantial returns. You see it before, you saw it in the period of 2007, back in 2014. So the Chinese market can react very, very quickly and, and rally very quickly. Right now, there is so much, so much negative sentiment and pessimism in the market that, that I think they are failing to look at the fundamentals of this market. For me, this is, you know, in a 27-year history, from my perspective, this is probably a third, the third time where I would look to aggressively be looking to buy this. I think we can look back in, 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 in a few years' time and say that the fourth quarter of 2018 was a good buying opportunity. Now, I'm not saying go out and rush and buy, buy now. I'm just saying that we have had a lot of negative news. We may see some further weakness, and I suspect you know the news of today will be taken into perspective. But as I said to you before, and I repeat, you know, 6.6% is what was expected. 6.5 is what came in, the lowest since 2009. Now. The Chinese economy in 2009 was $5.1 trillion. The economy now is $12.2 trillion. So you need to put it into perspective, okay? This is an economy that's more than doubled in the space of 10 years. You cannot expect it to be running at breakneck speed of circa 6 7%. Okay, so let's get used to lower levels of GDP, but the long-term story of China has not disappeared. It will not disappear, and that the fact that the Chinese government are putting its willpower and its full arsenal of, 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 of you know, ammunition behind it is something that you must not fight against. You know, when you ever come up against the Chinese, there's only ever one loser and there's only ever one winner, and you're never the winner. It's always the Chinese. All right, just to summarize for this last panel, which is that I think the structural growth in China looks intact. Earnings is positive. Companies are making profits. Valuations right now is a 10-year low. Um, does that mean that you should buy it today? <laughs> does not mean so, but start looking at it. I think there are opportunities emerging and coming up. And with that, I thank the speakers for the panel for today. Thanks, everyone.